Now we come to chapter 25, and we read here this parable of the ten virgins. Now this is the basis of those who believe in what is known as the partial rapture, that only some will be taken out of the world. The partial rapture group made up of a lot of very fine people. When I first became pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, there was a wonderful Bible class there. And they supported me in getting Bible conferences into Nashville. And they had been taught from the beginning by a teacher who believed in the partial rapture. And very candidly, I feel the partial rapture ministers to spiritual snobbery. That is, I never met one of that group that didn't think he's with the five wise virgins. I never met a foolish virgin in all my life. They're all wise, that crowd. And as I talked with them and worked with them, I had a feeling that they were not sure that I was one of them. I'm sure that they could have classified me as one of the foolish ones. But it does lead to spiritual snobbery. Now, thank God when the rapture takes place, every believer's going out. And we're all going out, nobody on the basis of merit. We're all leaving because of the grace of God. He saves us by grace. He keeps us by grace. He'll take us out of this world by grace. And when we've been there 10 million years, We'll be there by the grace of God, my friend. So that the ten virgins do not refer to the church. It refers to the nation Israel. My friend, if you just let our Lord talk to these men who were his apostles with this background, they've raised several questions, let him answer them. And don't make him talk to you about something altogether different. You're interrupting him, as it were. Let him say what he wants to say to those to whom he wants to say it. And let's us just listen, and the application is for us, but not the interpretation. Let's notice now. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now, the Peshitto, which is not even a manuscript, it's what's known as an uncho, not a good one. The thing about it that makes it good, it's in the Syriac of that day, is that it certainly reveals the customs of the day. And I would not recommend it at all, but I would say that it reveals the customs of the day. Now, in that translation, they meet the bridegroom and the bride, so that he's coming from the marriage to the marriage supper. Now, those of you that were with me in Revelation know that I made the statement, tried to sustain it, from Revelation, that the marriage takes place in heaven, the marriage supper takes place on this earth. And I'd like to refer you to a statement in the Gospel of Luke that I'm sure illustrates this in Luke, the 12th chapter, verse 35. Here, again, he's giving warnings and parables, and he says, "...let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord." when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Now, you see, the wedding has taken place. The bride is with him. And, of course, if he's coming from the wedding here in the Gospel of Luke, the bride's with him. No man ever went on a honeymoon by himself. If he did, it wasn't a honeymoon. And so here, it's the bridegroom that's bringing the bride with him. And they are waiting on earth for him to come. You see, while the great tribulation is going on on the earth, why, he's yonder in heaven with the church. 
and he's coming now with the church. And we find, and five of them were wise, five were foolish. This is the attitude toward his coming now to the earth. They that were foolish took their lamps, took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now, I believe that the oil is the Spirit of God. And I think again in that day, as it was in his day, there'll be a lot of phonies. He called them hypocrites. They'll have a lamp, but no oil. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. They all slept, but some were genuine, you see. Some had oil. The others did not have the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that that is the interpretation of this. And he concludes it by saying, verse 13, "...watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh." And it's the day nor the hour now, you see, not the year or the century. The day and the hour. And the attitude during this period is to watch. That is the important thing for them to do. Now he has another parable. Verse 14, The kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, called his own servants, delivered unto them his goods. One he gave five talents, two talents, one talent. Every man, according to his several ability, straightway took his journey. Now the key to this, of course, and it's for that day, I think the pounds that he gives in the Gospel of Luke is more applicable to us today. But there's a great principle in both of them, of course. He's judging every man according to his ability. And he's to use the talents. Now, the talent is not a talent. It may be that God has given you a wonderful open door. And candidly, friends, you don't know how many times I have to go to the Lord and Tell him that I want to use it, whether I'm one talent, two talent, I don't know which it is, but whatever it is, I sure want to use it right. I don't want to put it in a napkin. I don't want to sit on the sideline. I don't want to bury my talent. There's a great principle here in light of the fact you're going to stand in his presence and have to give an account. Now we come here in verse 31 to the judgment of the nations, all nations, We're given an opportunity to hear and receive God's message in the great tribulation period. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached among all nations. But some rejected the servants, that is, Christ's brethren, and thereby rejected Christ. That is the picture that we have here. Now, I recognize that some will disagree with us here also, but that's all right. You'll be in good company if you disagree with me in this interpretation. In fact, you'll be in better company than being with me. But if you want to be right, of course, I'm sure you're going to want to come along with me. But now let's look at it at least. Verse 31, "...when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory." You see, all is moving to the consummation of the ages. All is moving around this particular point. The polarization of all of the Olivet Discourse is moving toward the placing of Jesus Christ on the throne of this world in which you and I live, of this earth. And that's the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, that's the message of the Word of God. Now, we have here the nations are to be judged. And somebody says, doesn't it mean individuals? 
All right, if you want to do that, individuals of the nations then. But nations are responsible to him. And before him shall be gathered all nations. And the word is ethnic groups, let's say. But they'll be responsible. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now, I do not believe individuals are ever called goats. They're all sheep. All human beings are sheep. Then there are two kinds of sheep, lost sheep, saved sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. His sheep turned to him. Lost sheep and saved sheep, not sheep and goats. I think these are ethnic groups, nations, if you please. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, what's the test? Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, fed thee, and... When saw we thee sick in prison came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. That 144,000 sealed at the beginning of the great tribulation will go out over the entire world to bring the message of the gospel of the kingdom, which is to accept and receive Christ as the sacrifice for their sins and be ready for his coming, for his coming immediately. Now, some nations will reject him. Antichrist will have them butchered and slain. But wait just a minute. Anyone that would give them a cup of cold water would do it at the risk of their lives. Now, to hand out a cup of cold water today, there's no value in that, friends. But in that day, it'll have a tremendous value. And it means that you've taken a stand for Jesus Christ. That is the basis. It's an acceptance or rejection of Jesus Christ. And these who did not do it, he says, you rejected me. When you did this for my brethren, you did it for me, because they were representing me. And that was the way they evidenced faith. And the message that these messengers were bringing was that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn to Christ, and be saved. That brings us now to the 26th chapter. And this 26th chapter brings us to the final events right before the cross of Christ. And we have here the plot to take him, that he's anointed by Mary of Bethany, sold by Judas Iscariot, and the first Lord's Supper, and the predicted denial by Peter, agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed by Judas, arrested by the chief priests, brought before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and the denial by Peter. All this one chapter. And as we said before, this is the longest chapter that we have in the Gospel of Matthew, 75 verses. I also should say that I have never been quite able to figure out why those who divided the chapters of the Bible didn't make three chapters out of this. There's a natural break after verse 30, and again a, a natural break after verse 56. We'll see that as we get to it.
I'm reading now Matthew 26, verse 1. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, what sayings? The Olivet Discourse. He said unto his disciples. Now he turns to his disciples with this message. He's answered their questions now. Here is something else. Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now, he says here, in two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and crucified. The very interesting thing is when you drop down to verse 5, or let me read on and come to verse 5. Then assemble together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, notice this, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Do you notice something that's very important for us to see here? First of all, in verse 2, for the sixth time now, he says that he's going to die. Six months before this, once a month, he's been telling them, since they left Caesarea Philippi, he began there, and he announced his impending death. And now, here he sets the time of his death. He says he'll die during the Passover. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. The very ones who put him to death said, we'll not crucify him during the Passover. He said, I'll die during the Passover. When did he die? We died during the Passover. He, not his enemies, set the time of his execution. He's in command, friends. He's a king in Matthew. And when he seems more helpless and weaker than any other time, that's when he's in charge. Their bitter hatred, you see, it led them to plot his murder. And they wanted to do it their way, but they'll not be permitted to do that. He's never so kingly as when he comes to the cross. And the closer he gets to the cross, more kingly he becomes. And this is an important section, therefore. Now, we pass from that incident to one that's all of marvelous light. Will you notice it? Verse 6, Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had bitter indignation to what purpose is this waste. Will you notice this lovely incident here? It was in home of Simon the leper. <laughs> Why did they call him Simon the leper? Did he have leprosy? No, he had had it. <laughs> Who healed him? Jesus. And now he's able to sit down and have fellowship with the Lord Jesus and with those that are his. This is a wonderful scene. My friend, the enemy today doesn't know him. I hear the liberal talk about Jesus, and they put on a play. This will shock you. You can't read the Bible have prayer, but you can have the dirtiest, filthiest plays you can imagine. And they put on a play of Jesus and his disciples, and I think it was in the upper room scene, and they all were homosexuals. My friend, that's blasphemy. <laughs> that's blasphemy. Of course, they don't know him. <laughs> they don't know him. 
after all, as a bunch of lepers, spiritual lepers that put that on. And a spiritual leper, if he told the truth, would have to say, he's unclean, unclean. But when you come to the Lord Jesus, my friend, and he cleanses you, then you can sit down and have fellowship with him. And this is beautiful here. It's lovely here. There came this woman having an alabaster box of ointment. Now we are told who she is. The woman was Mary. John tells us that in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. She anointed both his head and his feet. And it was Judas then who led agitation against her. We are told here, though, that all the disciples agreed with him. I think he led the marchers here, the protesters. After all, Judas was the first one to lead a protest. Verse 8, "...but when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor." These people that are always thinking about the poor and doing nothing themselves. I'm going to say something now right strong, and I want you to hear it very carefully. We have in Washington quite a few of our legislators there that are millionaires that are always talking about a poverty program and something for the poor. Have you ever uh, tempted to find out how much they personally have done for the poor? Some of them are worth millions. I don't care for that kind of hypocrisy. I don't know about you, but that doesn't impress me at all. And these, even these apostles don't impress me at all. They said, oh, this is waste of ointment. Imagine it, pouring it on the Lord Jesus and saying it should have been given to the poor. I wonder how much they really cared about the poor. The evidence is always in. What are you really doing yourself? Are you trying to get votes? Are you really trying to help folks? Now, these men here, they said, for this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. And that's accurate. It could have been. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. And friends, as far as a Christian is concerned, would you hear me very carefully? He ought to give nothing or do nothing that doesn't glorify the name of the Lord Jesus. I have been in Los Angeles for years, and this crowd down here has learned that I won't participate in all of these good works they do down here unless Christ is glorified in it, unless it's done in his name. And I find out that they don't do very much. I'm amazed how little they really do. How much do they really give to the cause that gets out the Word of God or give to that which brings blessing to people? Who builds hospitals anyway? Who builds orphans' homes? Who really is fed the poor? Why, we hear today of the corruption among the politicians in the poverty program. It makes me sick to hear the liberal mouth about his concern for the poor. I don't believe a word of it, and I want to see it. And all the talk does not impress me at all. When it's done in the name of the Lord Jesus, he himself said it's a good work. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. And I want to say this. I think that those 
of us today who say that we trust Christ, want to glorify and honor him, we ought to be doing more in his name, by the way. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial to her. You know when Mary broke that alabaster box of ointment there in that home of Simon the leper in Bethany? That was the place of light and friendship for the Lord Jesus. Jerusalem was the place of hate. He never stayed there. He stayed out here with these people who loved him. Those are the ones he fellowships with today, those who love him, those who want him. And you can have him if you want him, friends. be very easy to. But this is such a beautiful thing. That box of ointment that she broke in that house that day, it's filled the world today because he said everywhere that the gospel goes, this story would be told. And we're telling it right now. And they tell us that over a million people are hearing it. May I say to you, it's sweet ointment, friends. And our Lord recognized it. They talk about the apostolic succession. I like the succession of marriage. She's the only one. The apostles missed the point. She's the only one before he died that entered into his death. And our Lord says this is a memorial for her because she stood on the fringe of things and entered into his death. This is just to let him know. And did she waste her ointment? I've read the story that the morning that he came back from the dead, that first morning of the week, there came these other women, and they brought ointment also to put on the body of Jesus. I have a question to ask you. Did they ever get their ointment on the body of Jesus? They did not. He was gone. <laughs> he wasn't in that tomb. Friends, Mary's the only one that got the ointment on him. And today, we need to break our alabaster box of ointment to put it in the name of the Lord Jesus. I tell you, the world doesn't know him outside today. And we that know him ought to be very careful that we do things in his name and that he gets the glory and we don't get the glory. And at verse 14, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I'll deliver him unto you? And they covenant with him for thirty pieces of silver. This is a dark thing. Danny gave Judas and Brutus the lowest place in the inferno because they did the lowest and basest thing, betrayal of those that you should be loyal to. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, they go into the upper room, and they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's time for him to do that. And we're told when they went in, and I'll drop down to verse 21, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Every one of those men knew that he had it within him to betray Christ. Have you discovered that in your own heart and life? Friends, you and I are just that mean and low. Oh, you say, I wouldn't do it. Are you sure about that? May I say, even right now, you ought to cry out to him for mercy. I'd do it every now and then because I know he has to keep me may keep you and me. 
Now I begin reading at verse 23, because each one said, Lord, is it I? And now he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Some people say that you ought not to keep children from being born into this world. Well, here's one man that shouldn't have been born, friends. Verse 25, Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He didn't say Lord. He couldn't call him Lord. He could only call him Master. He said unto him, Thou hast said. And at this point, apparently, Judas left the room. John goes into more detail at this point and explains that he left at this time. Verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You see, we have here instituting the Lord's Supper over the dying ashes of a fading feast, the Passover. He makes it very clear, But I say unto you, I'll not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Passover's to be reinstituted in the millennium. He says here that he'll drink the fruit of the vine again in the kingdom. That means that the Passover apparently will then look back to his death as the Lord's Supper, which he's instituted here, looks back to his death for you and me today in the church. But the Passover, which had looked forward to his coming, will also look back to his coming in the kingdom. We are told when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, this ends the first division of this chapter. seems to me now we have a new division. Verse 31, Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it's written, I'll smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I'll go before you into Galilee, Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. This man, he just same as saying that he didn't trust the other apostles himself, but that the Lord could sure depend on him. But his problem was he didn't know himself. And that's the problem many of us have today. We really do not know ourselves. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. This man said that he would not betray Christ, but our Lord said that very night before the cock would crow, three times he would deny him, not just once, but three times. That is, before morning. And that was the night that Simon Peter, of course, did betray him. We'll have an occasion to go into that. Now, let's move on. Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. 
Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. I want to go into the Garden of Gethsemane in a great deal more detail in another one of the Gospels. Here, the thing that we need to pay attention to is this, that these three men, now that he takes with him, come with him into the garden. And the prayer that he's praying here, when he prays that the cup might pass from him in his humanity, the horror of that death that he was to die. And I think actually more than the death itself, and something that we do not realize, or at least we don't seem to emphasize today, that he was made sin for us. Now, he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, but there on the cross the sins put on him, not in some forensic or academic manner, but in reality the sin is put on him. And when that sin was put on him, why, he, at that very moment, with horror, it was a horrendous thing that he experienced when this one who is holy as he is, is made sin for us. And so it's difficult for you and me to enter into the full significance of Gethsemane. But I believe here is where he won the victory at Calvary. The cup was evidently his cross, and the contents were the sins of the whole world. These were repugnant to his holy character. He's not asking to escape the cross, but he's praying for God's will to be done. And this, I do not think, by any means exhausts the meaning of Gethsemane. He was tempted by Satan, I think, as truly in Gethsemane as he was in the wilderness. But that's the prayer now that he makes here in the garden. Now, we'll have occasion to go into this in actually more detail when we get to the Gospel of Luke. I'm reading now verse 42. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. He is accepting it. Those today that say that he's trying to avoid going to the cross is not exactly true. This is the repugnance and the awful horror of his humanity against the drinking of the cup, which means having the sins of the world put upon him there upon the cross. These men, they went to sleep. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. He left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now, take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And I think that of space, of time, takes place here. There's an interval. I do not know how long. He told them to sleep on. And the next verse says, rise, let us go. Obviously, he didn't say, let's sleep, and now immediately say, let's get up. What you have is an interval here. And they had their nap, as it were. They needed this rest. 
You notice how he pays attention to the needs of their bodies. These men needed that rest. And he says now, after they've rested a while, rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. The fact that Judas and the enemy had witnessed many miracles, they did realize that he had supernatural power and that he might use that. And so they bring as many out to take him as possible. I think their whole guard that was in Jerusalem at this time, and Pilate always brought up a big guard to Jerusalem. He didn't like Jerusalem. He stayed over at Caesarea, and he would only come into Jerusalem on the feast days, and he brought a guard in order to keep order, because there were generally riots at this time. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he hold him fast. That hot kiss of betrayal is one of the worst things any man's ever done. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now, the theologians today, they argue about whether this man Judas was predestined to betray Jesus and he couldn't do anything else. Well, if that is true, of course, and he couldn't do anything else, then he was nothing in the world but a robot. But I think he made up his own mind and that he had every opportunity not to do it. But somebody said, yes, but it's prophesied that he was to do it. Is that right? Well, I'll have to agree with you. It is right. It is prophesied. And our Lord's marked him out. He's the man. Now, could he have changed that? Oh, yes. After he came here and betrayed the Lord Jesus, I won't argue with anyone about whether he's predestined and all that type of thing, and it's prophesied and he can do nothing about it. He can do something about it now. After he has fulfilled the prophecy, after Jesus is betrayed, the Lord Jesus could still call him friend. And he said here, after he's betrayed him, after he's marked Jesus out with that hot kiss of betrayal, friend still calls him friend. Wherefore art thou come? In other words, he's saying to Judas, Judas, you can turn this hot kiss of betrayal into a kiss of acceptance, of repentance, of coming back to me. And then a little later, when he came into the temple and threw the pieces of silver down that had been given to him, he at that time, when the priests were going through, they were leading Jesus then over to Pilate. He could have fallen down before the Lord Jesus and said, forgive me, forgive me. I didn't know what I was doing. Would he have been forgiven? He certainly would have. I won't argue about being predestinated and it's prophesied. All I know is, I'm just a poor preacher, that after he did it, that he could have accepted Christ. He could have turned to him. It was quite possible. Our Lord gave him that opportunity here. 
Now verse 51, And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. You know who that was, don't you? It was Simon Peter. You know what he's doing? He's trying to prove something. This man has been told that he's going to deny the Lord Jesus that night. Well, he got a sword somewhere, and he says he's going to protect him, and he tried to do it. We're told he cut off an ear. Now, this man's a fisherman. He's no swordsman. He wasn't after ears. He was after his head. He loved to lobbed off the man's head. He sure almost missed him. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? I don't need your little sword, Simon Peter. I haven't come to put up a battle against the religious rulers. I've come to die for the sins of the world. Simon Peter missed it at this moment, of course. Verse 54, But how then shall the Scripture be fulfilled? That thus it must be. You see, our Lord is fulfilling Scripture, and he makes that clear in Matthew. Verse 55, In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. You see, his hour had not come. Now it has come. Verse 56, listen to him. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. He had predicted that. They leave him now. Now we come to the third division of this chapter, chapter 26 of Matthew. Now will you notice, And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. And we find out later on that the father-in-law of Caiaphas was really the one that instigated all of this. I'll go into that when we get to the Gospel of John. But here, he's brought now to Caiaphas. He was the high priest, and he must be brought there for the first charge. You see, they've got to determine that night, because they're going to ask for the death penalty, just what it'll be when they go to Pilate. Now we are told, verse 58, But Peter followed him afar off under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Simon Peter followed afar off. Verse 59, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses." You see, the problem in getting a false witness is getting a witness that'll stand up under court investigation. After all, Pilate might be a little inquisitive, which he was, and ask a few annoying questions. Now, they finally found two witnesses that said, "'This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days.'" Now, you see that the disciples misunderstood that statement. John tells us that. And this man was present at that time, and he said, I heard him say that. The high priest rose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Now, he tries to get the Lord Jesus to answer so they'll know what kind of argument to put up. But Jesus held his peace. He had nothing to say to the high priest relative to this. It's so absolutely far-fetched. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God... 
that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now the high priest puts him on oath, and he asks him the specific question, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. And that's tantamount to saying, Yes, I am. Thou hast said. That's right. I am. You said it. That's who I am. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, the title he claims for himself here is Son of Man. As Dr. Warfield says, that's the highest title that he had. That Son of Man goes back to the book of Daniel. The prophets used this. Ezekiel used it. And it is a title of deity. He could have claimed no greater title than to have said that he's the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, and it was against the Mosaic law for the high priest to rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now we've heard his blasphemy. Now they think they have something. What think ye? They answered and said, He's guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. How they hated him hating the Lord Jesus. You see, this is the natural antagonism of the human heart to his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, and the fact that he's God. Did you know, friends, if you and I, that if we had our way with just that old nature, we'd knock God off of his throne? That's the reason the crowd went around and said, God's dead. Why would they say that? because they'd like to get him off his throne. Human nature hates him. They spit on him. They buffeted him. They smote him with the palms of their hands and ridiculed him, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? And they played a game with him. I'll talk about that when we get the Gospel of Mark. It was hot hand. They would blindfold him, hit him in the face. Then he'd have to guess who hit him. He never guessed, of course. They never would let him. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and the damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. He denied before them. And I'm going into this in a great deal of detail later. Verse 73, After a while came another unto him, and stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear. And he could do that, by the way. I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which said unto him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. He went out and wept bitterly. This poor man didn't realize how weak he really was. But our Lord had prayed that his faith fail not. And he could repent and come back, and he did. Judas could have. Now we have the events in chapter 27 that surround the crucifixion of Christ. The Sanhedrin delivers Jesus to Pilate. And you have the repentance of Judas and the trial before Pilate, the release of Barabbas, the crucifixion, death and burial of Jesus, and the tomb sealed and a watch set. Now we've come to the central fact of the gospel message. Paul says to the Corinthians, I delivered unto you the gospel. What is it? That Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We've come now to the record of that event. 
Now, actually, Matthew does not give a record of the actual crucifixion. In fact, no gospel writer does that. They merely tell what went on around the cross. Now, I know that there are those that can depict in graphic terms of how the nails were driven into the quivering flesh and the blood spurted out. Oh, yes, but that's not in the Bible, friends. It's as it were the Spirit of God put the mantle over it, and God spread the mantle of night down over the last three hours of his crucifixion and says, this is something you cannot look at that's beyond human comprehension, and the suffering cannot be fathomed, and it was a transaction between the Father in heaven and the Son on the cross." And that cross became an altar on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered. And all Matthew says here, and they crucified him. We'll see that when we come to it in just a few moments. Now, will you notice, I begin reading at verse 1, and we have here now the Sanhedrin delivers Jesus to Pilate. You remember, they arrested him, tried him at night, which was contrary to the law, and the high priest ran his clothes. That was contrary to the Mosaic law. And not only that, but we find that they played a game with him. They buffeted him. They smote him with the palms of their hands. That was a Roman game. The Roman soldiers, when a prisoner is to be put to death, why, they could do with him as they pleased. And they played a game called hot hand. They would show the prisoner the hands of each one of the soldiers of the guard. Then they'd blindfold him, and then they would really punch him. I mean, take the palms of their hands, and then after that, they'd take the blindfold off, and he'd have to pick out the one hand that didn't hit him. And as you well can understand, he'd never guess the right hand, even if he did guess it. I think that they beat the face of the Lord Jesus into a pulp. Read the 53rd of Isaiah again, that he was marred more than any man. They made him look absolutely not like a human being. They'd beat himself. Then they ridiculed him as a prophet. They said, prophesy unto us. Who smote you? Ridiculing him there. And then Peter comes and we have him denying the Lord. Now in chapter 27, I read, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now, they formulated a charge that, as they're taking it now to the Supreme Court, they must have a case that will stand up before the Roman court. Verse 2, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Now, you see, the Lord was there when they were leading him through that hall to take him to deliver him to Pilate. Why, here comes Judas. Why didn't he turn to the Lord Jesus and ask for forgiveness? But he didn't. What he said was, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? See out of that. In other words, you've chickened out. You're yellow. You did the job, and it's over with, and we have no need of you any farther. We have the one that we were after. We paid you off. 
And what happened? Verse 5, he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. This man now, he leaves the temple area and goes out and hangs himself. He could have turned to the Lord Jesus and been forgiven. Verse 6, And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it's the price of blood. How pious they are. You see, we can't use it in the treasury. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. And all this was done, by the way, will you notice, wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. And that you'll find in Jeremiah in the 18th chapter, the first four verses, and again in Zechariah, the 11th chapter of 12 and 13. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. And Jesus stood before the governor. You see, he was there. And on the way to die, even for Judas, our Lord had given him his opportunity. Wherefore, friend, art thou come? And even at this eleventh hour, he could have turned to the Lord Jesus, and he could have been forgiven. Now, will you notice verse 11? And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest, you are right. You see, the charge that they made was they wanted to get rid of him because of blasphemy. That is, that's what they accused him of. Why, he said, Henceforth you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. That to them was blasphemy. And on that charge, they would have crucified him or at least stoned him to death, but they couldn't do it. So they now deliver him to Pilate, but they have to have a charge that will stick in a Roman court. And treason would be one, and this would be it. Here's one that claims to be the king of the Jews. And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. In other words, are you saying this yourself? Actually, you're right. You're saying it. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Now, you see, they wanted to make certain false charges against him, and as they did, our Lord didn't even take the time to answer him. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. He's the lamb, you see, led before shearers as dumb. Now at that feast the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Now the byplay that took place, John will go into detail, and the other gospel writers will add a great deal to this, but Matthew only gives the bare facts, you see. He just says that this was the charge that was made, and this was no basis on which to crucify him, actually, because he had not incited a rebellion. There had been others that had, but the Lord Jesus had not. So he hit upon a very happy solution to the problem. He wanted to please these religious leaders uh, in order that there might be peace in Jerusalem. 
But he also felt like that he couldn't just sentence him arbitrarily to death, that is, the Lord Jesus. And he hit upon the fact that he had there a very notable prisoner, which means he's a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And he was guilty of about everything, murder, robbery, treason, the whole bit, by the way. Verse 17, "...therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas, or Jesus, which is called Christ." Now, he thought that this crowd would certainly ask for the Lord Jesus. The contrast was so evident, for he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Pilate, he was a clever politician. He could see what was taking place there. He was sure that he had an airtight case now, and they'd asked for Barabbas to be crucified and Jesus to be released, and that would give him a very happy out to this situation. But it's not going to be that easy. But now verse 19, "...when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him." Now, somebody says, how do you explain that? Well, very easily. She's as superstitious as she possibly can be. Maybe tied up in one of the mystery religions. This sort of thing could have been satanic very, very easily. And I'm sure that that's the background of it. I don't think God gave her this warning at all. But here is a woman that should have said, well, if he's a just man and dying, she should have investigated, found out more, got more information. But she didn't, you see. Just superstitious. Have nothing to do with him. Now, we find here in verse 20, "...but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus." You see, the religious rulers circulated among the crowd. They're clever politicians themselves. And they said, now the thing to do is to ask that Barabbas be delivered and to destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. And this man Pilate, here he's taken aback for a moment. He never dreamed they would stoop to do a thing like this. But he didn't know how low religion could stoop. Verse 22, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And friends, why should he ask the crowd for the decision? He's the judge. He should have made the decision. Now, we'll find out in the other Gospels, especially John. John tells us how many times that Pilate called him back on the inside. And what he's really saying to the Lord Jesus, if you will cooperate with me, I can get you out of this, and he'll get me off of a hot seat that I'd like to be off of. Actually, when you read this in all the four Gospels, you find out that Jesus is really not on trial, but Pilate is. He had to make a decision relative to Jesus Christ. Our Lord's not trying to escape at all. And so he asks the crowd, imagine a Roman judge asking a crowd, what'll I do then with Jesus? And I tell you, it came back to him. It was flung in his face. They all say unto him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil hath he done? But a mob never has a reason. But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. 
when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Now, he called for a basin, washed his hands, said he'd have nothing to do with it. But it's not that easy, you see. He had to make a decision. Every man does. What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your station. You can't be right in the rest until you think rightly of him. What do you think of Christ? That's the important one. And he tried to wash his hands. But the bitter irony is that the oldest creed that the church has has this statement, crucified under Pontius Pilate. He didn't really wash his hands of this deed. The blood of Jesus was on his hands. Verse 25, Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And unfortunately, that has been true and can be demonstrated. Verse 26, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, Pilate's willing to stoop this low himself. He had to make a decision, and his decision, of course, is one of rejection. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall, gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And now they'll do with him as they please. They'll ridicule him. He becomes a plaything for this brutal, cruel crowd. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! May I say to you, this is frightful that they did. They spit upon him. This had happened before. They took the reed and smote him on the head. I believe that he was beaten into a pulp. Friends, he was marred more than any man, is the way Isaiah describes it in the 53rd chapter. Now, verse 31 here, And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, and put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come into a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, and I believe that that place is Gordon's Calvary, by the way. I looked around when I was there. I sure that after all these years and the things that happened to Jerusalem, it's difficult to make a judgment. I'm sure that if you have to make a choice between the two places that have been chosen, then it would be Gordon's Calvary. It is a place of a skull. They gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. You see, that's in fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 69:21, And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. So that all this is happening according to the fulfillment of prophecy. 
and sitting down, they watched him there. And I think that here you see humanity that has reached the very lowest depth. I don't think you need to go to Skid Row. You don't need to look at the dope fiends. You do not need to go to a prison and look at some criminal. If you want to see mankind that's reached the lowest, here it is. And sitting down, they watched him there. And I believe in that crowd was Saul of Tarsus. Later on, he called himself the chief of sinners. Now, the reason he called himself the chief of sinners was because that's what he was, the chief of sinners. And sitting down, they watched him there, and they set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. My friend, if he's the Son of God, he won't come down from the cross. He didn't have to prove anything at this point. He's now dying for the sins of the world. If thou be the Son of God, they raise the doubt. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders. Now, you think that that pack of bloodhounds, after they got him on the cross, would go home and let him die in peace, but they didn't. You see, they stayed there till the last minute. Verse 42, he saved others, himself he cannot save. And that's the truest statement that they ever made. That is a true statement. He saved others, Himself he cannot save. If he's to save you and me, he had to die on the cross. If he came down from that cross, you and I'll have to go up. We'd have to be executed for our sins. We deserve it. We're hell doomed sinners. And he took our place there. Not only Barabbas's place, but yours and mine. I wonder sometimes if Barabbas didn't get saved somewhere along the line. Well, there was a thief that did. Now, he saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Would they have believed him? I don't think so. But he didn't come down because he's taking your place and mine. Verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The crowd understood that he claimed deity, you see. Verse 44, "...the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth." See, both of the thieves at first did that. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now we have here this three hours of darkness. You see, he was put on the cross at the third hour at nine in the morning. Man did all he could. Then at the noon hour... Darkness came down, and then that cross became an altar on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer to that is, if you read Psalm 22, it opens with this statement. It says, Because thou art holy. When my sin was put upon him, God had to withdraw. He had to be executed if he's going to take my sin 
and Yoas. Verse 47, Some of them that stood there when they had heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with vinegar, and put it on a reed, and gave him to drink. Why? Well, to fulfill prophecy. The rest said, Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, notice how he died. He yielded up the ghost. He went willingly. The death rattle, and every person has it, is when they gasp for that last breath. We want it so badly. He dismissed his spirit. Now, friends, we're right in the midst of the first part of our gospel, which is the death of Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And we find here in verse 50, Jesus, when he'd cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. They crucified him. Verse 35, and they crucified him. That's all it's told, no details at all, just these things that surrounded the crucifixion. The Spirit of God put the blanket of silence upon that cross that you and I might not look upon it to satisfy our curiosity. But he died there for your sins and mine. Now we are told in verse 51, Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. At the death of Christ, several very notable things took place. And one was there was an earthquake. The other is that in the temple, the veil was rent, not from the bottom to the top. Man didn't do it, but from the top to the bottom. And that veil speaks of his flesh. And when his flesh was rent upon the cross... And he paid the penalty for your sin and my sin in his own body on the tree. Then the way to God was opened wide so that you don't have to have a priest to go in for you. You don't have to have a preacher to go in for you. You don't have to have someone else to go in for you. You can go directly to the throne of God as a sinner through Christ. And let's emphasize that you only come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ The only way to him is through Christ. And that was because he was rent. He died upon the cross when he gave up the ghost. Your sins and mine were paid. We come to God through him. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, verse 52, "...and the graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints which slept arose." came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, this is the part that we wish that more had been told us. I can't go into a great deal of detail here at all, other than to say we believe that it happened this way, and these were part of that great company that went to heaven when he led captivity captive at his ascension. Now, the important thing for us to note here is that this earthquake was an intelligent earthquake. It was not just haphazard. The graves were opened by it, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, just certain ones. I'd like to make this point here. There is a very excellent treatment of this by Bishop Nicholson 
in his little book entitled The Six Miracles of Calvary. Many times at Easter, or Good Friday, I should say, why, we have had the seven last words. Well, we had those for, I guess, 15 years straight. That We decided we'd switch and take the six miracles of Calvary, use Bishop Nicholson's little book. And it was proved a rich blessing to many. I would say that if you're interested in that, go to your gospel bookstore. It's a rich little book, not only for this miracle, but their six miracles of Calvary. You'll notice they appeared unto many. There were witnesses to it. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And Luke said he went and stood beneath that cross. That centurion maybe didn't know a great deal but he did know enough to take his place beneath the cross of Christ. And that's all that God ever asks any sinner to do, is just to take his place beneath the cross of Christ. He'd never read Hodge's theology or Strong's theology, and he had never read any of Augustine's City of God, and he hadn't even had any of my books, by the way. But he knew enough to take his place beneath the cross. I believe the centurion was a saved man. He witnessed these things. And these are the things that confirmed to him that this was the Son of God. And he took his place there. Verse 55, And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joes, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And I'd never know he was a disciple until this event. But you see, when the very thing that caused the apostles to be scattered seems to have drawn in others that up to this time had what you would call secret disciples. But now he steps out in the open and he declares his faith, he was Jesus' disciple. And he went to Pilate on that basis, and he begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. This man, and also Nicodemus, who came to him by night, and John will tell us about that, he came bringing a hundred-pound weight of ointment to put on the body of Jesus. And these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who apparently had been in the background and what we'd probably call secret disciples, they now come out in the open. At least they were the undertakers that handled the body of Jesus. And we'll see later just exactly what they did. And these two men became believers. Verse 59, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out, in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. Now, near Golgotha, there is a tomb, and they point it out as being the one in which he was buried. They call it the garden tomb. I don't know whether he was there or not. I sometimes wonder. I, frankly, would have my doubts. The important thing is not to be able to locate the tomb. I 
saw a woman go in there and get right into the place where bodies were placed and get right down on her all fours and kiss the floor of that tomb. I saw no value in that at all. That's no good. may not even be the right tomb to begin with. There were many sepulchers in that area, and it could have been any one of them. I'm sure it's in that area. This one's as good as any. But uh, try to pin these things down and make them holy and sacred spots is not his intention. It wasn't to make a sacred spot there, but it was to take that gospel from Jerusalem, the fact that he died for the sins of the world, and take it to the world. That is the important thing, not to be able to locate the sepulcher. Now, verse 61, there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I'll rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He's risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now, the zeal of the enemy actually gives a confirmation of his resurrection. If they had gone off and left that tomb there, then the argument they gave that the disciples stole the body away might be plausible. But, my friend, when you've got a Roman guard around it, and when the tomb is sealed and they're there watching it, you may just write it down that the thing that is happening is not going to take place. That was stated later, that they stole his body away. They made this sepulcher sure. My, how the enemy went to all this trouble, and yet it gave a confirmation of his resurrection. Then another thing that's quite interesting is that apparently when he had told his disciples he would rise again the third day, they had just told everybody about it. And uh, apparently these rulers got word of it, maybe at the last minute or at the time of the crucifixion. And as soon as they can get another audience with Pilate, they said, look, Let's make sure, because he made this statement, and we want to make sure he doesn't come out of the grave. They didn't expect him to come out, and very frankly, the apostles never expected him to come out of that grave. All four Gospels, when you look at them, you discover that. And I think we'll get a little confirmation of it here. Now, we come to chapter 28, and the chapter 28 is the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Great Commission. These are the two great incidents recorded here. The arch of the gospel rests upon two great pillars. First, the death of Christ, and then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the gospel rests upon it. Listen to Paul as he states the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15:3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, 
according to the Scriptures. Now, we've had the death and burial, and in chapter 28, we have the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both facts are essential to saving faith. He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. He was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The unique fact of the gospel, of course, is the resurrection. All other religious leaders had died. None of them died for their followers, but he did. And the other religious leaders, none of them have even made a claim they came back from the dead. The one thing that makes Christianity unique today, well, take the founders. Where are the founders of the other religions? They're dead. And where is the Lord Jesus? Well, he's alive at God's right hand at this very moment. I do not think any gospel writer gives all the details concerning the resurrection any more than they do of the crucifixion of Christ. They merely state the fact. And you have here these different records. And I know that there's been attempts made to try to say there's a contradiction in them. Actually, there's not. The Schofield Reference Bible has a very fine note on this. The old Schofield Bible, it was on page 1043. And if you don't have a Schofield Bible, you ought to have one, and you ought to look up that note. It's a very important one, by the way, to read and see the order of resurrection. Now, will you notice chapter 28, verse 1? In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. You see, they brought out ointment also to anoint his body. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Now, why was it necessary to roll back the stone? To let him out? No, he was gone when the stone was rolled back. He was out of there. The stone was rolled not to let him out, but to let them in. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake, became his dead man. That guard there, they were very happy to leave after this. Verse 5, And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And these are steps that every individual should take before he witnesses. First, he is not here. He's risen, as he said. There must be a conviction of that. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Have it settled in your own mind that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And then we're to go and we're to tell. Verse 7, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I've told you. Now they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. 
Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. These men, these soldiers that were on guard duty, they went in and reported. They didn't know when he left. All they knew was that the stoners rolled away. It frightened them to death and that this angel had appeared to the women. I don't think the soldiers saw it at all. But the soldiers took a look in, and they said he wasn't there. He was gone. Now, what are they going to say? And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. That, may I say, is not a very plausible thing. Can you imagine a soldier today, for that matter, or a soldier in that day, especially a Roman soldier? He's told that he's to guard a certain place, and he's to be sure nothing happens there. No one comes. Now, suppose that what he's supposed to guard, that someone does come and takes away the thing that he was to guard, and Suppose his explanation is, I went to sleep. What do you think would happen to him? That soldier would be executed, as you well know. I can't imagine this story even ever becoming plausible, and yet it's used by the enemy, of course. Verse 14, And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. If this word would get out that that's what you did... Well, the governor would have you for a firing squad, but we'll take care of that now. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. That is the story that was told, of course, by the enemy. Notice verse 16. We have now the great commission that is given. We have actually two extreme viewpoints of this so-called Great Commission. And very frankly, I think both of them are rather extreme. The Great Commission in Matthew, it's a source of controversy. One extreme group, they feel that the so-called Great Commission contains the only command for the church. This is it. And they just hang on to it. Others feel that it has no meaning for this day, and it should be excluded from the church program. Now, both of these are extreme views, and both, to me, seem to be in error. We've endeavored to show that Matthew has direct application for us, and I think the Great Commission has an application for us today. And this doesn't mean that it'll not find a final and fuller meaning in the future. I think it will. But it's obvious that Matthew did not give the total record of the resurrection, and neither did he give us the total commission. Now, the commission in Matthew should be considered with the other Gospels, and especially with Acts 1.8, as well as with the other three Gospels. All of these give a full orb command for the present day as well as the future. And I think that it all should be put together, given as a composite. Ye shall be witness unto me, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then unto the very ends of the earth. You shall be witnesses unto me, and you're to be endued with power from on high. Now, with that in mind, this is part of it. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. That is the way it's been for 1,900 years. Some believe, some doubt. And right now, I'm sure there are people listening to me in both categories, but I rejoice that I believe most of them are in the category of those who believe. Now, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He's speaking as the king. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now, I think this will have a real application in the great tribulation period. I'm sure it will even in the millennium. But friends, it has an application for us today. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is triune baptism, you see. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age, not the world. He says, I'll be with you. Now, I can't see anything that's wrong with this for today. Now, the Great Commission is not really, to me, the important thing right here. It's the Great Omission. There is an omission here. What is it that we don't have here? Well, I could almost wish and say, well, you read it over again. We'll talk about it next time. But we're going back to Exodus next time. So let me just say this. What is it that is omitted here? There's no ascension here. You know why? Because the kingdom is here upon the earth. And Matthew leaves the king upon the earth because this is where the king is to be. Now, he takes his own out of the world to be with himself. And the ascension is essential for that. Now, will you notice in closing, he was born a king. He lived as a king. He died a king. He rose again a king. And friends, he's coming again to this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. I hope you bow to him today.